0: Welcome to another Scotsway podcast, and tonight I am joined by writer Charles E. McGarry. Hello, Charlie.
1: Hi, Ali. Good to see you.
0: And you, and you. And we're going to talk mainly about the mystery of The Strange Piper, the third of the Leo Moran mysteries, but I'm sure we'll touch on so much more. I thought before we got into the book in specifics, let's talk about Leo Moran as a character, because he's a character I absolutely love, and I'm really interested in how he came about.
1: Yes, well, first of all, it's great to be on the show because you've been a real champion of Leo Moran since the beginning. Um, this is the third book that's come out just on Friday there. And you've extolled his virtues to the extent that uh, one of your review quotes, as you know, adorns the rear jacket of the new book. So, uh,
0: well, the which, was, well, here is the book, and it is indeed. And I was chuffed to yes. bits. I have to say, that that was the case.
1: I mean, there's one of these that quotes one of these ones that really I should be giving you a brown envelope in the post. Uh, there's some used banknotes in it. But uh, so, yeah, um, Leo uh, was conceived, I reckon, about late 2010. Um, he is a psychic detective. Um, he's an uh, eccentric, cultured, Eliodite, bon vivant. Uh, he uh, when I say he's a psychic detective, he is um, he, has pert- he has certain visions which pertain to certain crimes. Usually they are oblique visions, they might come in dreams, they might come in daydreams. Um, I think I got the original idea, I, I remember when I was a teenager, I watched a documentary, I don't know if it was solely about this woman or whether it was about different psychics, it was about this woman who um, was a psychic in America, quite a celebrated one, and she predicted or foresaw the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, oh. which obviously um, caused America's involvement in World War II. And of course, she wasn't listened to, she was considered a crank. But something always fascinated me about that. And I think I had a vague idea for a psychic detective for a number of years, probably going back to the 1990s, because I, I used to live in London and I remember. of thinking about it then but I had absolutely no meat on the bones it was just a um, completely uh, embryonic idea and then late 2010 my cousin and her husband they bought or rather constructed a house on the banks of uh, or near the banks of Lockall in Argyll Mm -hmm. and it was a beautiful uh, Scandinavian kind of style uh, well it was actually Scandinavian they kind of imported the parts and so I went up to visit for the first time, and it would have been maybe October or November, um, and so that was the, the darkening uh, evenings and the landscape all kind of denuded of leaves and, and browns and uh, and blacks and greys instead of uh, the colours of summer. And it was just very atmospheric, and the landscape, um, I would say, uh, is almost a character in the first book.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: it takes on that role in the book. I fictionalized it as Lockon, which is spelled D H O N N. I used to call it Don until someone, a Gallic speaker, told me that you don't pronounce it like that. Um, I think I think Lohon means brown, right. um, so it was just that was just the, the name for it. And it's like it's, it's a rough version of Locko um other influences that kind of convey us at that time was what i just finished that summer i read a confederacy of dunces mm-hmm. by john kennedy too i don't know if, if any of your uh, listeners have have listened, have read that um it's a remarkable book very funny book uh, set in new orleans um and the, the the kind of and the hero or anti-hero that's a guy called ignatius j Riley who's an extremely pompous and supercilious man, and he had a bit of an influence on Leo, uh, but Leo's got far more redeeming qualities than Ignatius. Um, Leo is a gentleman, and he's good-hearted, even though he can be pompous and um, sharp-tongued sometimes. Also, I think, probably not that long before then, some had given me the box set of Sherlock Holmes books, and I'd read them all and loved them all, I've always been a fan of the Basil Rathbone films and the, the Jeremy Brett television show. So Sherlock Holmes was like, as with everyone, um, forefront of my mind. But reading the books uh, was a different experience altogether. And that was, that's an influence on Leo. Yeah. As is the kind of Watson sidekick. Um, Watson's kind of fulfilled by, for Dice, who he meets in the first book. Um, I mean, another small, incidents that occurred then was I had a nasty bit of flu, and as everyone knows, when you have flu, you can have very peculiar and vivid dreams, yeah. and that kind of just fed into the this idea of visions of, uh, the uh, as I say, pertain to certain crimes, and in fact, the, the book actually opens with Leo waking from a vision and wondering if it was a flu dream or if it was actually uh, something far more uh, sinister than that. Um, so th- these were the um, these were things all converged, really, all at the same time. Ali, and before I knew it, I was I was writing this book, and I, I knocked her first draft out quite quickly.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and because of that, I think it needed rewrites and editorial work and everything else, and changed the order of some things. But really, the book didn't change that much from the first draft. Um, And uh, that was that was how it was
0: all conceived. And were you always aware that it was going to be more than one book, that it was going to be a series? And the reason I ask is that it seems that in each book, you give away a little bit more about Leo's background and and the things that have happened to him to make him the man he is. Well, actually, no,
1: I I think I wanted to make a series, but it all happened so suddenly and unexpectedly that I didn't know. If, you know I didn't know if another idea would um, materialise, um, and another one did materialise, uh, which is set this time in Cuckoo a kind of fictionalised version of a part of inland Cuckoo Um that's called The Shadow of the Black Arrow. So when Berlin Polygon took an interest in the Ghost of Helen Addison. Um, so I went through to meet them and sat down with a couple of people there, and I kind of expected they would say, you know, is this a series? We are watching up a three book deal? And I was a little bit maybe anxious about that because I thought, no, is this second book going to come to anything? You now I had it in kind of note form, or you know, development notes. I'd done a bit of research, but uh, so I kind of punted it to them, and then and they said, okay, right, it's a two book deal, and then they hit me with a, a, a deadline of uh, twelve months. And I had to write the, the, the blessed thing, and it went fine. Um, in fact, it went too fine because I ended up writing 150,000 words, um, and I'd kept a bottle of champagne for that moment. Opened the champagne, uh, shared it out, drank it, and the next morning, it, next morning, I pinged off the email and almost instantly got a response saying. <laughs> this is 50,000 words too long so it was kind of back to the drawing board but
0: um,
1: it wasn't it wasn't as bad as it sounds because uh, I had a couple of kind of sub-narratives in it telling one was telling Leo's backstory about when he was a teenager and the kind of traumas he went through and one was telling his romantic interests backstory and the traumas she went through as a child and I basically just took them out and then just hid the else back the third book, um, which is just out, The Mystery of the Strange Piper, it, it's, it's basically set on the Isle of Butte, Ali. Um, I've called it the Isle of Sona, S-O-N-N-A, but to all intents and purposes, it's Butte. And the, the first two books, I did make some uh, geographical uh, rearrangement, shall we say, but this book is, is more or less a replica of Butte. Um, now, I've got... a strong connection with Butte because uh, I spent all my childhood holidays there um, as did a lot of my extended family so it's it's a bit of a kind of legendary place to us um, there's just so many funny and uh, affectionate stories about the place so people kept saying to me when are you going to set one in Butte and yeah. I'm not I'm not 100% sure right but maybe somebody seated the idea and I can't remember who it was so if I'm not crediting someone, then it's it's a it's it's genuine. Uh, I just can't remember it. Um, so I started writing that. It was in terms of research was and all that was much easier because I know the place very well. And it's just out. Um, it's out with a new publisher called Backpage Press, and we've got the rights to the first two books and we've reissued them and we've re-jacketed them. So all three books have now got a more old-fashioned golden age style to the jackets that, that kind of blend in each other.
0: Yeah, I was having a look at all three. And that again, for people that are watching the video, but if you don't go to the website and check Backpage Press uh, website, they're, they're really lovely covers. The design on them is fantastic.
1: Thanks. I was quite lucky to get them, Ali, because I was kind of running out of ideas. I knew I wanted something more golden age and more um, just evocative of interwar period of crime writing but I just I couldn't figure out a concept in my head and that cover and the the covers to the first two books they were actually designed by a Brazilian woman and it was for a competition to design a a cover for a Marjorie Allingham omnibus, Mm -hmm. Uh, Marjorie Allingham being one of the better uh, golden age detective writers so this Brazilian woman had done these covers. She hadn't won the competition, but I actually thought they were the best. Right. And I realized that we could just read, you know, tweak them. There's little inlaid in illustrations in them, replace them with things with items from my books, replace the blurb, replace the titles. And it just worked really well. And I have to say, everyone has really remarked on the covers. So I'm so pleased, you know.
0: Um, and you know, you say that they're all out with a uh, back page now, they're kind of known as a sports related yep. publisher. So, what's your relationship with them? How did that come about?
1: Well, uh, I know them quite well actually. Um, but they are, they want to branch into fiction now, so they put my book out and also a book. I don't know if you know a guy called David Simon,
0: he's a yeah. really good
1: writer, he's We've a really had good him on the novelist
0: a few years ago. Yep. Oh, did you?
1: Yeah. Right. Why? Well, I've, I've actually got, it's just sitting here. Let's, let me plug for David. Yep. I haven't started reading it yet.
0: Responsibility well, above. Love. It's my responsibility.
1: Above.
0: I was going to say uh, it's the next on my pile to read as well. So, uh,
1: yeah. Aye. So, yeah, uh, he, he did a, a novel a few years back set in Japan, which um, was really quite stunning. No, um, I agree. Uh, so, the Anyway, this is Backpage's first uh, forays into fiction Um, and they're they're just really good. They're a really good publisher. They they cover every base and they're just full of new ideas and they're they're totally down with the whole online thing as well, which has been a huge help to me.
0: So this is interesting that they're deciding to to go into fiction um, at a time when a lot of people think, well, fiction, maybe literary fiction or whatever, doesn't sell as much so do you know why that was that was just something that they really were, thought they could do well
1: yeah I think they're just they're really connected to um, the world of Scottish publishing and I think it's just it's also a different experience for them uh, trying to push fiction rather than uh, sports books because I mean Martin Gregg for example who's one of the partners uh, he's a big big uh, fan of fiction, especially uh, Scottish literature. He studied that at university. Uh, in fact, he co-wrote a novel with me once, a football novel, but it's still a fictional novel.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, I think it's something new for them. I new to think of the bow. and it's not a huge company, but perhaps if they you know, cast different nets, then there's a chance that uh, one day one of them will become, they'll catch a big fish,
0: you know? Yeah. It's exciting news to hear that because I think it's an exciting time for Scottish uh, literature at the moment, Scottish writing. There's quite a lot of new voices coming in, but there's also some uh, who, people who are getting well established who are releasing some amazing new new work. Indeed. Um, well, going back to uh, Leo, the character, what drew me in to begin with was there was a level of detail in the book which I really enjoyed, you know, when he would... Particularly, I think it struck me first meeting him in, in Helen Addison is that uh, when he would eat, there would be this fantastic detail of the food that he would eat. When <laughs> he would dress, there was some beautiful detail. But it just it really appealed to me that the hero was a character. It's interesting you were saying about um, reading crime fiction from earlier last century. He feels like a man out of time often.
1: Yes. And... Some readers have told me that sometimes they forget that reading a book set in the, in the current era and then suddenly a, a mobile phone will ring or something yeah. and they remember. Um, yeah, I wanted to create that. I wanted to create a world that was ornate and richly drawn um, and that just, I wanted to stimulate the reader's senses, every one of our senses, um, the way things look and smell and taste um, and I wanted to kind of to kind of dwell in Leo's uh, love for the beautiful be it antiques or art or furnishings or clothes or fine wine uh, or good dining um, and it's it's very much a, a homage to uh, a, a, a bygone era. I myself am not much of a foodie so a lot of that stuff was just based purely on research and. Rather than going for kind of more modern uh, menus, I was I was looking at the kind of things you would maybe get in a in the Dorchester in the nineteen twenties or something. And I even at one point remember looking at a a menu from the Titanic. Um, so I think there's a couple of dishes from there uh, involved. But yeah, it was just to create an atmosphere, really, Ali and uh, Leo's a very old-fashioned guy and his outlooks and he's a sort of an anachronism and uh, the world he inhabits uh, I, I I somewhat date it um, so I guess I, uh, I play around with uh, reality a little bit um, and some of the, the you know the terms that he uses and um, you know people wouldn't really use him anymore people don't really refer to the radios or wireless anymore or whatever else and you don't really see great Scott whenever they are surprised by something, but I really enjoy doing that.
0: Yeah, because there's this sense that he is his own creation as well, because it's not the ba- He doesn't get the background you expect. This he's ch- deliberately kind of changed who he is as a kind of almost like a, a, an armor, a protection because of something. Yes. More. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I described in the second book that uh, it's as though he lives inside his own movie. Um, he almost lives his life as always a character in a film um, we find out in the third book uh, that uh, the reason that he underwent this transformation he was actually brought up in a working class area um, like many working class kids his parents uh, educated him at home you know and in the sense of um, encouraging him to read and uh, appreciate music or whatever else. Um, but Leo kind of took that and ran with it. Yeah. And he, in some ways he was rejecting the culture that the working class culture that he that spawned them. And the reason for that is that it rejected him. Um, the reasons for which are, are explained in detail, um, but he was falsely kind of suspected of being involved in a very um, serious crime.
0: So there's a bit, what you were saying there about kind of man out of time and, and, and who he is, there's a bit in the book, if you don't mind, I'll read your own book to you. Okay. <laughs> which, kind of, which kind of struck me, uh, and it's a conversation between him and his friend Trouton. it's maybe not the right word, but certainly someone who he knew at that period you're talking about when he was at university and 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 kind of, they do have similar uh, outlooks. And uh, Trout at one point says... Yes, this is not the age of beauty, Moran, this is the age of vulgarity. The lower appetites now unashamedly take precedence, and meanwhile, ugliness abounds. And then Moran says, there's always been ugliness, boorishness, banality. Yes, but previously there was something to compare it with, an ideal that was widely exalted, and they go on to discuss, you Mm -hmm. know, the nature of truth and how things are, and that kind of gets to the heart of what you're saying, isn't it, from his world outlook?
1: Yes. Um, the it's easy to um, eulogise the past, but there was a lot of things wrong in the past, in the, maybe in the kind of era that Leo would have wanted to have lived in, and that's undoubtedly true. There's a, a lot of things about living in today that are far better, um, not least in terms of things like equal rights, for example.
0: It, his, his point of view and the one he's discussing with Trouton there, it's, it is a kind of aesthetic point of view, isn't it? It's about... Um, I I mean, what you're talking about might have hid some terrible things in the past, but there was this front.
1: You know, one thing that characterised the past was, there was a lot of hypocrisy, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, we we presented a certain kind of uh, moral uh, order, but people didn't really live up to it. Um, And you are better off just being more honest with things, but I think that the the, the the beauty and the aesthetic aspects. There's a there's a museum in Bilbao which I went to a few years ago. And I'm not talking about the Guggenheim,
0: right.
1: uh, but it's I think it's a museum of fine arts. And it, the you, it's not it's not the big the biggest museum. There's maybe three floors. You start I started at the top, walking my way down, and it was like walking your way down in time.
0: Yeah,
1: and it was it. Be- eventually ended up in the present day in terms of um, the uh, the genus of the artworks. And it was like a descent into hell. <laughs> I mean, it was it was going from truly beautiful uh, artwork, uh, from religious art, through to um, impressionists, and then through into modern art, and it just got uglier and uglier. And I think a lot of that's to do with what happened in the 20th century, and how the uh, certainly the European consciousness changed uh, because the storm had happened and Auschwitz had happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the dalliance with uh, nuclear Armageddon had happened. And I think that um, maybe our brains were a bit better furnished uh, before all that stuff went down. Maybe there was... uh, Maybe there were aspects to our own wickedness that we hadn't uh, contemplated or been aware of, but also maybe there were things restraining us somewhat, maybe there was certain ideas about civilization that more or less there was a broad agreement on and I don't really think that is the case anymore um, I mean I'm, I should say right that Leo is, he's a devout Catholic yeah. and you know he, 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 that informs his worldview. view um, what I kind of try to do in the books is rather than just give him free reign is i uh, try and create an opposing arguments so with an opposing voice uh most notably his friend stephanie who's yeah. i guess you'd call her kind of woman of the world um and the great friends even though there's this kind of uh, contrast between them and she offers an alternative view to what leo says uh but leo sees the world in terms of of good and evil he thinks that that you know, well, there is a God. There is another side to existence, yeah. um, that, and it has visions of somehow tuning into that other side.
0: But yeah, because at the end of that bit that I read, uh, Moran says, "But there's always grace." You know that that's the there's the yeah. always grace. And I think it's interesting if we talk about what um, appears to be kind of supernatural aspects of the books, um, but actually. He wouldn't see it supernatural, would he? He would see it as more something that's more religious than than you yeah. know horror, I mean, it, horror or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, someone said that um, there is no supernatural. There's just natural. You know, the supernatural. What we would deem the supernatural is just the normal order of things. Um, I suppose uh, what, what I wanted to create in these books. Was a meaningful universe, a universe with a meaning at the heart of it. And I think a lot of crime fiction, I, I like a lot of this type of fiction, but it can wear you down a bit when it, it, is, it can be very bleak. Um, and I wanted to have, even though terrible things happen, that there's a, a definitive kind of moral um, aspect to it. Um, he, the, the use of the supernatural in the books um it's a kind of gothic uh device that i use it's um and i what i what i tried to do ali i think in the first book when i wrote the first draft it was pretty much a street yes this has got a supernatural side to it um and you can take that as read and then I, when one of my rewrites i tried to kind of um blunt that a little bit or or fudge that a little bit and therefore Leo would become the character who who believed that some of the things that unfolded were uh, to do with the supernatural and then the policeman who's a guy called D.I. Lang, who's a a good man um, but he's just a you know he's a materialist man he's a a quintessentially pragmatic man he disagrees with Leo about that and he actually expounds his own um, credible uh, theory of events you know, the same dichotomy exists in the other two uh, books, two and three as well, and uh, that there's um, if events that happen that could be a trick of the light, or there could be something else. And Leo tends to take this something else view. So I don't want to kind of, again, I don't want to preach to uh, the readers. I want to leave some ambiguity so they can transpose their own interpretation on it as well.
0: Yeah. I mean that's what, one of the reasons I love them is because it's not heavy-handed. It's not, you know, um, a bloodbath or you know that kind of thing, or you know, someone. It's it's it is. You yeah, have got that sense of doubt, and in the new book, uh, you know, you've got this mystery of the the strange piper, but it could be explained, you know, psychologically or just illogically, you know, rather than than the supernatural thing. And I do. Really like that about them. Going back to Stephanie, and she, I think she's a great character, and when she appears, you remember that it's in the kind of present day. You know, she almost drags the story. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. To, to and he often catches up with her in, in, in Glasgow as well, of course. Um, so you've made a series, a podcast, which I wasn't aware of, called Debut, which details your journey to being a crime writer. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and the podcasts?
1: Uh, well, um, the, they, they were commissioned by Backpage Press uh, back when I was published by Berlin Polygon. Because I know Backpage Press, they, uh, they just proposed this idea. Uh, Neil White of Backpage Press it was kind of his baby and he drove it. Um, and they, they wanted to do a podcast debut and the this catch line was a writer's journey from bedroom to bookshelf and it just it was I think it was maybe six episodes and it was about that it was about that it was about conceiving of the idea just the things we've discussed it was about the um getting published getting an agent losing an agent um getting a publisher the process of writing the book and, and then and then finally. And then I also spoke to a couple of people in it, uh, such as Val McDermott and Christopher Brutmeier. Um, So I've really, I've recently started doing a season two, which I've been doing myself. Um, and, and as much as I interview writers, so, so far I've done Alan Parks and oh, Denzel Myrick. Um, I'm gonna try and uh, get a few more uh, over the next few months.
0: Um, so where would, uh, where would people find the podcast? Cause it sounds like a really interesting listen.
1: Yeah, well, I think, what's the website? Let me just have a quick look. Yes, yes, Ali, the website is called DebutPodcast.com DebutPodcast.com
0: Fantastic And uh, you, you mentioned there you had your launch, how did that go? Was it a in-real-life launch or was it still done remotely?
1: It was remote, I was I was going to do a, a, an actual launch, and I'd I booked a haul and uh, various other things, and there was a, sur- a surge in COVID infection rate. Um, and just just by coincidence, over a two day period, several people I knew came down with it. And I just thought, I can't, I can't go ahead with this. Mm-hmm. I won't forgive myself if people catch it. Um, so canceled everything. And we came up with the idea of doing a virtual launch, uh, which we did from my flat actually. And Martin Greger back page, it was just us sitting down chatting and then a few people asked questions in the comments section. And I did a couple of readings and you know, it was actually fine. It was yeah. it was OK. And. Uh, um, yeah, uh, I, I quite enjoyed it, actually. It was you know, something a bit bizarre about not having any response from
0: yeah. an
1: audience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, is this thing working? Is it actually going out, yeah. you know? Exactly. <laughs> <made> a, a <laughs> Thumbs up if it, if it was working, you know, so but it's fine. You know,
0: it's. Good. And uh, so, what's next for Leo Moran and for yourself? Is there going to be another? Do you can you give that away or is that trade secret? Well, I don't.
1: I, mean, I haven't started working on anything else. I've got, you know, earlier we were talking about whether uh, when I'd written the first one, whether I, I was worried about whether I could conceive of another one, but I've now got several uh, embryonic ideas, but. You become confident enough in the trade that you think, well, I could, I could probably turn that into something. I could put flesh on its bones. So, for example, um, I've got one that's I think will be kind of set in the borders, but a much more uh, not a fictionalised version of somewhere, It'd just be a kind of different fragmented places in Scotland I would haul together in this little border's location. I think I might call it the Lady of the Lake. That's its working title because there's a little... Loch with a little island on it with this lady, Leo keeps speaking to this woman. Um, and then I've got c I've got an idea for a couple of prequels, Ali, uh, both of which are referenced in the first book.
0: Right.
1: One is just referenced because it's called the Monday Murders and um Detective Lang has heard that Leo helped Detective Caroline with the Monday murders, and that's all we hear about it. Yeah. So yeah. I thought to myself, that could be a, a, a story. It could be set in the, in the mid-1990s um, in a the winter. There was a really cold winter then that no one seems to remember, but the Clyde actually froze. I think it was either, it might be 94, 95 or the fall winter. Okay. And and it would be a serial killer and it would be, instead of Leo we went to the countryside, this time it would all be in Glasgow. Another thing that you hear about throughout the novels is that Leo was mentally ill when he was a younger man. He was actually in a mental hospital at one point and so this book, if I wrote it, would be in the immediate aftermath of that or such that he's really not in a good place. Um, So that would be challenging but I'd like to try it. Um, And there's another prequel idea which is also referenced in the first book and that's about how Leo became him wealthy because he lives in this beautiful apartment, it's good. Money's not a problem for him, just doesn't have to work and basically what he did was he um, using his visions not as a mercenary, he would have done it anyway but he helped a family locate their daughter who had been kidnapped and it involved Leo travelling around Europe um, on, on her tail and on the tail of the kidnappers and the family were very grateful and uh, with the Signing of a cheque made him a wealthy man and made me, uh, enabled me to write about all the opulent things in Leo's department, uh, apartment. Um, so those are some other ideas that are floating around. Um, a couple of other non-Leo ideas right. that I might turn to first. Don't know. Okay.
0: I love the idea of the, the, the young Leo, like the young Sherlock or something like that, uh, I think it's a great idea.
1: Yeah, well, I, the, I don't know if you're a fan of Inspector Morse. I always liked it. And I came up with this idea, a young Inspector Morse. Um, oh, they need to make one of it. It could be set in the 60s. And then next minute, Endeavour popped up on the <laughs> telly, you know, like, yeah. that was my idea. <laughs> probably a hundred thousand other people had it, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: but you've got your character, it's all set there. And I certainly, for one, would love to hear more about the younger version and why he becomes the, the man that he does.
1: Yes. Uh, well, as I say, one of the narratives that I had to cut out of the second book because it was too long, it charted his, well, I think he was 14 in the summer of 76, the hot summer of 76, and that was when his world kind of uh, fell apart. Um, so I don't know, I'd like to, I mean, that's that's all written, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, it might be something like 10,000 words. Um, I'd like to re- release that someday, either as a, a standalone thing or as part of a um, of a novel, um, as like a kind of flashback uh, sequence, but uh, yeah, I think he's got a lot of mileage, and he's developed a little bit over the three books as well. I mean, not massively, um, because to some extent your detective has to be a, an anchor to a series, but he's evolved a bit, and it'd be interesting to see what he what he does in the future, and how he became the man he is.
0: Yeah. I agree that he does evolve. Um, I think when you first meet him, there is a kind of sense of, oh, am I going to like this character? I'm not entirely sure. You know, but maybe it's the reader getting used to him and also, um, as you say, this development over a period of time, because I grew to, to absolutely love him, even in the first book.
1: Well, I think he's... Uh, that, that's the worry when you're writing a character like Leo, is, are you, you know, is he too sour, you know, um, is he, does he go too far sometimes? And it's that fine line between maintaining sympathy for a character and, and, uh, and losing it. Um, but I think if you build it around someone whose motivations are noble, then yes. the reader will pick up on that. And uh, he is, you know, deep down a very good person. Um, he just, he's got his faults and the readers seem to warm to him. Uh, whereas someone like Ignatius Riley is he's a grotesque character, you know, I'm talking about the, a confederacy of dunces again, uh, I mean, and, and it's comedy and that's fine, but uh, you don't really, it's not a question of caring about what happens to Ignatius, you know, it's, uh, and then in the book, in the Mystery of the Strange Piper, there's a character called Marcus Triton, uh who's, he's, as you mentioned, is Leo's university friend invited him down after all these years and with Marcus I had such great fun writing him Ali because that's was probably the most fun I've had as a writer because he really is a comic character and uh he's an absolute rascal and he's I guess he would be the kind of archetypal trickster he's he's there to, to persecute Leo um and I guess maybe he goes over the line for some readers maybe they'll just find him just too obnoxious or too cruel um, but that's kind of okay, you know. He's you know, he is what he is. He's he's in the he's in the series for this um one novel, um, and he fulfills a certain role in it. But you don't necessarily have to love him, you know. Uh but you could I don't think you could have him as your as your main man, you know.
0: I I was thinking that in an Ealing comedy he would have been played by Terry Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that about him, you know, especially when Stephanie suddenly turns up. Oh, I don't want to give things away. I won't give anything away. Charlie. Well, I
1: think,
0: uh-huh.
1: Sorry, I was just going to say lastly is when I think of Troughton, I think of a young Peter Davison okay. uh, who played Doctor Who. I don't know why. I've always, he was kind of my Doctor Who when I was a kid. Um, and I've always liked him as an actor. So I kind of had Trouton's face in my, uh, Davison's face in my mind when I was, uh, Writing
0: well, I mean, that's an interesting thing. Have you thought about um that has there ever been a sniff that these might be made into TV? Eh,
1: uh, there was a there was a sniff a few years back. I don't know what happened to it. Someone asked me to write a a former polisher asked me to write a little synopsis for the screen. Um, never heard anything else. Um, i think i think they would lend themselves well you know
0: yeah i think they I definitely think. would yeah no absolutely well charlie thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with me i really appreciate it
1: it's been a pleasure seeing you Allie, and, uh, all the very best to you thanks for having me on
0: no bother at all and we'll be back soon with someone completely different